Please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2 as we return to our study of the book of Hebrews. Now you remember that Hebrews was written to a very uh, small house church, we believe, of uh, Jewish believers who were uh, struggling to reconcile uh, the Roman persecution that they were facing uh, with a loving and all-powerful God. And I I would believe that uh, many in the church in China uh, have had this same uh, struggle in the midst of persecution and suffering. I mean, how can God uh, just sit on His hands in heaven and do nothing while He watches us suffer like that, like this? Doesn't God care? I mean, has God abandoned us? I mean, have you ever asked those questions in the midst of the pain and perplexity of your adversity? Well, to bring comfort to these Jewish believers and to us today, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, beginning at verse 5 through verse 18, focuses on Jesus' solidarity with man. Uh, The main point in this section is that the essence of Christianity is not an absent God, but a present God. Not an uncaring God, but a loving God. A God who loved mankind so much that He became one of us to die for the penalty of our sin and to bring us into God's family. He loves us with a love that death could not kill, the grave could not bury, a love that rose from the dead to love us forever. And because He became one of us, He understands our struggles. And He's willing and He's able to help. You'll notice in your sermon notes that uh, I have highlighted four main truths in verses 5 through 18, that reveal Jesus' solidarity with man. Now, in our last message, we focused just on the first truth, that Jesus shared the human condition in order to regain man's lost dominion. In that message, we saw that God's original intention for man was that God crowned man, that next point in your notes, to be king of creation and to exercise control over all things. But then, tragically, man lost dominion over the earth when he failed to control himself and rebelled against God. And of course, when man fell into sin and lost that dominion, that dominion was forfeited to who? The devil who had seduced man into sin. And because God had given dominion to man as a legitimate gift, because man alone forfeited that gift, only man could regain that dominion, which led us to that next point. Jesus came to earth as a man in order to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to raise the human family out of defeat into our glorious destiny to rule with God. 
God's people, as we saw in that last message, are destined for the throne. And that throne has been secured for us by the one who now sits on it, Jesus, the representative of man. Now, what was the message to the small church of Jewish believers who were feeling uh, like a tiny, insignificant speck uh, in comparison to the might of imperial Rome? Well, yes, they may be a tiny speck in the Roman Empire, but not insignificant. Christ on the cross revealed the measure of their worth. Christ on the throne guaranteed a future that would be so glorious that the grandeur of Rome would be insignificant. And because Jesus is sitting on that throne today, they were guaranteed that He would not let anything touch their lives that He could not use to fashion them into His likeness and to accomplish His purposes. Now, this morning, we're only going to have time to look at the second truth in your notes. So, look at that with me. Jesus shared the human condition also in order to restore man's lost relationship with God. Jesus shared the human condition in order to restore man's lost relationship with God. We're focusing now on verses 10 through 13, and let me read those uh, verses for us as you follow in your Bibles. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim Thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will sing Thy praise." And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. I want you to look now at six wonderful encouragements that we receive uh, from these verses. First, the purpose of Jesus' suffering and death was to build a family to reflect God's character. The purpose of Jesus' suffering and death was to build a family to reflect God's character. Look again at verse 10. It says, For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing, notice, many sons to glory. Jesus became a member of the human family that we might enter God's family. Uh, This next verse is not in your sermon notes, but Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 reads, His, God's unchanging plan, has always been to adopt us into His family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. You know, God is often likened to a judge who condemned you as a vile lawbreaker. But then He came from behind the bench and paid the penalty for your crimes to secure your pardon. And that is true, but God did much more than that. He adopted you into His family. The one who once was your judge is now your daddy. Listen to uh, Romans chapter 8. Andy already alluded to these verses earlier. Uh, I want to read verses 15 through 19 for you. I want to read it from the uh, Phillips version. And we read, you 
have been adopted into the very family circle of God. And you can say with a full heart, Father, my Father, the Spirit Himself endorses our inward conviction that we really are the children of God. Think what that means. If we are His children, we share His treasures. And all that Christ claims as His will belong to all of us as well. Yes, if we share in His suffering, we shall certainly share in His glory. In my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. See, Christianity is about God building a family. Christianity is not just about believing truth. It's about belonging, belonging to God, belonging to one another, belonging to the church family. Christianity is all about relationships, fellowship, harmony, closeness. I mean, is your Christianity just simply a routine that you endure, or is it a relationship that you are enjoying with the Lord Jesus Christ? In your relationship with the Heavenly Father, is He smiling or is He frowning? In your relationship with your brothers and sisters, are you promoting harmony or discord within the family? And remember, if God has accepted you as His son or as His daughter, then I am obligated to receive you as my brother or sister and to love you as Christ loved me. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans 12.10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And let me just pause right here. I want to just commend the Edgewood family. Uh, You have been wonderful examples of this truth right here. Uh, This is a beautiful family. And you do love one another. And you continually amaze me how you reach out to one another, especially in times of need. Uh, Again, I've been here at the church now for 37 years. I've said this on other occasions. I'll say it today. I've never known this church in the entire 37 years I've been here to be challenged with a need and not step to the plate and meet that need. And come along a brother or sister's side and provide the strength and the comfort and the encouragement they need. So I, I thank you for that. I express appreciation to you as God's representative. Uh, but also we want to what continue to increase in that love and abound even more in that love for one another. Look at the next uh, encouragement in your notes. As the author of salvation, uh, Jesus was perfected through sufferings to be a perfect Savior. Again, verse 10 says it was fitting for God to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That raises an interesting question. In what way was an already perfect Jesus uh, made perfect through suffering? Well, notice being perfected through suffering is linked to what here in this verse? To being the author of our salvation. In other words, only through suffering and death could Jesus pay the penalty of sin to become a perfect Savior. Only through the incarnation could He fully identify with the human experience to become a perfect high priest. See, Jesus 
could sympathize with the fears of the Hebrew Christians as they faced persecution. And he sympathizes with us in our troubles. Why? Because he experienced trouble. He understands what we're going through. For example, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just let me share some of the phrases that are used and to describe that this is the emotional experience. He says, the Bible says he was in agony. It says he became distressed and troubled. It says he was struck with fear. Jesus terrorized in the garden. He was filled with unrest. He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. We're told in the Bible the stress was so great that he sweat drops of blood. And the weight of the burden was so great, we're told that he continually fell to the ground under the weight of its load. He felt isolated and trapped. One of the words is he felt almost orphaned, just abandoned. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Looks up to God, oh God, listen, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He says, let me avoid the cross. But what? Not my will, but thine be done. Then on the cross, Jesus felt forsaken by his Father when he cried out, what? My God, my God, why me have you forsaken? See, Jesus could understand the fears of those Hebrew Christians that were facing persecution. He could, he could understand why withdrawing from him and returning to their old Judaism appeared to be a very attractive, expedient measure because he had that same struggle to avoid the cross, to avoid persecution. And the author of salvation understands your struggles because he's a perfect Savior. Look at the next encouragement in your notes. And I love this one. Believers are Jesus' brothers and sisters, and he's proud of it. What a great thought. Believers are Jesus' brothers and sisters, and He's proud of it. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from, what, one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now listen, beloved, this, this may help many of you. When we struggle with trials and temptations... We often, and I'll, let me just acknowledge, I struggle with this. When we're confronted with trials and tribulations, we often believe God is ashamed of us because of our weakness, because of our vulnerability. You know, ashamed that, you know, I think I'm ashamed that I would even be tempted in that fashion. But nothing could be further from the truth. Absolutely nothing could be further from the truth. When you struggle with your trials, when you struggle with your temptations, Jesus is not ashamed of you. His heart is moved with compassion for you. Because He understands and He wants to help you. Isn't that a marvelous truth? And see, because the devil comes in and tries to whisper in your ear... You know, how could you be tempted like that as a, as a believer? How could you be struggling with that as a believer? You know, we come under shame and condemnation. Instead of running to Jesus for His comfort and grace, we try to what? Hide from Jesus. And so we need to see His loving, compassionate heart that He does understand the struggle. 
And He's willing and He's able to come along our side and to help us through the struggle to a place of victory. Now, the writer of Hebrews then drives home uh, Jesus' solidarity with man with three additional points. And look at the next statement in your notes. Jesus is in the midst of our corporate gatherings as an active participant in worship to lead in the proclamation and praise of God. Andy, you're going to love this point right here. Look at verse 12, which is a quote, and this is important. From this point on, these are three quotes from the Old Testament. And this first quote is from Psalm 22, verse 22. And it reads in verse 12, I will proclaim, this is Jesus speaking, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. Now, most of you are familiar with Psalm 22. Uh, Christ is, in the, is the speaker. In the first 21 verses, he prophetically speaks of his sufferings on the cross. This Psalm was written, of course, hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the crucifixion. The opening verse of the psalm is what? Who knows? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words Jesus used on the cross as He neared death. Uh, Later in the psalm, He talks about His hands and His feet being pierced. How they had divided His garments and cast them for lots. Uh, he, he talked about how they mocked him and scoffed him and ridiculed him. But in verse 22, there's, there's a turn. And that turn, of course, is the resurrection that followed the crucifixion. And Jesus then cries in triumph to his Father, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. Now, folks, talk about solidarity. Here it is. When the church meets for worship, Jesus is there. And he's not there as a spectator. He's there as a participant. It is not Andy the Young leading us in worship. It is Jesus. It is not Andy the Gray proclaiming God's Word. It is Jesus. We are just simply instruments. Folks, if we could ever capture a a true glimpse of this, it would revolutionize our worship. I mean, how could anybody sit there like a bump on a log when they realize Jesus He's here, and he's worshiping and singing at the top of his lungs. He has his hands outstretched, those nail-pierced hands that were nailed on a cross for your crimes, for your sins. His head lifted up in praise, that head that was crowned with thorns, that you might know God's enduring loving kindness. You know, we see the same truth in Revelation chapter 1. And it's an interesting connection because these Hebrew Christians were struggling with persecution. And so the emphasis is Jesus is in solidarity with you. He's not absent. He's present. He's in your midst. And when you go to the book of Revelation, most of us forget the fact that that book was written to believers at a time when persecution had so increased under the reign of Domitian, Domitian that the question was, was the church going to survive? I mean, it was severe. The church literally had been forced underground into the catacombs at that time in Rome. If you read his letter to the seven churches, 
I mean, the church has had all sorts of problems. I mean, they had left their first love. Sin had infiltrated the church. Moral compromise had infiltrated the church. Every single apostle was dead except for John, who had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Things looked bleak. Things looked bad. They were just holding on by a thread. And what, what, the very first chapter, what do you have? You have this incredible vision of Jesus in his glorified state. And do you remember where John saw Jesus? He was standing in the midst of the church. In solidarity with this church. His arms around them. And it emphasizes in that first chapter, he's standing with the church. He's sanctifying the church. He's strengthening the church. He's securing the church. He's going to save the church. And then he gives them this glorious glimpse into the future to ensure them, believe me, you're on the winning side. Hang in there. Hang in there. Because the future will be glorious. Look at the... um, The next point, as our real brother, sharing our human frailty, he had to depend on God in suffering, and so must we. As our real brother, sharing our human frailty, he had to depend on God in suffering, and so must we. Uh, Look at verse 13, the the first part of verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. And this quote from Isaiah is used to show that while suffering persecution, Jesus depended on God. When Jesus was clothed with the frailty of human flesh, he put his trust in God. Even his final words on the cross were a statement of dependence. Father, into thy hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. We see in this verse, again, Jesus' solidarity with the suffering church. The message was, hey, you're being persecuted and suffering? Well, I was persecuted, and I suffered. You feel weak, and you're fearful? Well, I felt weak, and I was fearful. And you must depend on God just like I had to depend on God. That's what's going to see you through this time. Look at the final encouragement from these verses, that the believers are also secure in the arms of Jesus, confident of a great future. Believers are secure in the arms of Jesus, confident of a great future. This is the latter part of verse 13, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. And it reads, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This is sort of a fascinating reference. Uh, The verse is actually referring to Isaiah and his two sons that were, uh, had very special names that were given as signs and symbols to the nation of Israel. Uh, When you go back to Isaiah chapter 8, it was a very bleak time in the nation's history. It looked like the enemies of God were going to prevail. Uh, the, the, The children of God were in a terrible state spiritually. I mean, they they had wandered, they had drifted into rebellion, into God's chastisement and judgment. And again, a time when it just, it looked black, it looked dark, it looked bleak, it looked like it was over. And in the midst of that, God gave Isaiah two sons through birth. And he gave them two, God gave them two special names. Now, if you want to know how to pronounce those Hebrew names, talk to Jonathan, not me. 
He took Hebrew. I did not take Hebrew. But basically, the one son name meant, uh, or was the promise, uh, that, that God would prevail uh, over his enemies. The second son was that God would once again bring spiritual prosperity to the nation, that there would be a, a remnant that would be restored. And so it's almost like you can see old Isaiah in this very bleak, dark time, putting his arms around those two boys and saying, Behold, I'm here, and my two boys, and we're going to make it through. And God's going to come through. And God's going to break through all this darkness. He's going to break through all this oppression of our enemies. He's going to break through even our own spiritual darkness and hardness. And He's going to return us to Himself. And so, if you apply this, it's a beautiful thought. It, it's as if God, it's if Christ now, he, he borrows this, this picture that we have in Isaiah. And it's as if Christ puts His arms around the, the suffering church, around His sons and daughters, and He says, here am I and my children, and we will survive this onslaught. We will be the last one standing, and our future is glorious. In other words, what's God doing? He's giving these believers a guarantee that the final word will not be the victory of God's enemies. The final word will not even be the failure of God's people. The final word is going to be the triumph of God's power and love to the praise and the glory of His grace. So what has God spoken to you this morning? I I trust you have seen, even as Jesus was expressing His solidarity to this church, He's expressing His solidarity with you. That no matter what you're going through right now, Jesus is standing with you. He understands your struggle. He understands your fears, your agony. And He's willing and He's able to help. And He will bring you through. Father, thank You for the uh, truth from the Scripture today. Uh, Lord, I pray that You would use it to encourage our hearts. And thank You, Jesus. You are here. You are walking the aisles of this church right now, looking into the hearts of Your people. And that is a heart of compassion that hurts when we hurt. A compassion that moves you to come along our side as we struggle with trials and temptation and even failure and sin. Not that you would ever condone that. But Lord, if there's one guarantee we have on this earth, and really it's the only guarantee that we have, is that you love us. And as we've said many times before, you love us with a love that's not going to let us go, but it's not going to let us off. And so just thank you for such love. Thank you for a perfect Savior like that. Thank you for a perfect high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, which in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.